Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, or look at the insert in, the, in your um, programs, or if you're using the NIV, I believe you'll find it on page 489 of the scripture. Now, we have um, been looking at texts that speak specifically of Christ being born. It was three weeks ago, we looked at Galatians 4.4, 4, that phrase, born of woman, born under the law, and we saw that by doing this, that Christ being born under the law, that he was able to save us from having to try to fulfill that law, which is impossible to do, to try to earn our salvation. He did that work on our behalf. And then we looked in Philippians 2, verse 7, where it says that he was born in the likeness of men. And saw there that the example that was being set for us uh, to live lives of humility. And now we're coming to our final text. And let's see what that text has to teach us regarding Christ being born. Let me read it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, it's interesting enough, isn't it, that this child is being born, this text, is about government. This child is to be the head of a government, as it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This child will have the responsibility of a nation laid upon him. And this can be done because of who this child is. So we're given this as we continue on in verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, So let's take a look at these terms for a moment. First, that of wonderful counselor. That that term for wonderful in Hebrew is called pele. And it oftentimes describes God himself and his acts. And so Isaiah later on in chapter 28, 29 says this. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counselor. So when you link it with counselor, What we have is the description of someone who possesses wisdom beyond the ordinary. Indeed, wisdom that is supernatural. Now, by counselor, Isaiah does not have in mind our modern-day notion of, of a counselor, someone we might go to for personal problems. He's thinking of the wise men who were chosen by the king to be his to be his counselors and to advise him. This king, however, does not need such counselors because he is the wonderful counselor. Now, this child is also mighty God. And this is clearly a designation of divinity. The very word structure and the form is identical to what is used for God himself. And so Isaiah, actually in the next chapter, in verse 21, using these exact words, he will prophesy that a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. 
And that term for, for mighty is what is used for a military warrior. It indicates then that the ruler of this government will also be the deliverer in battle. Okay. Now we're told also that this child is everlasting father. Now the few times when the Old Testament speaks of God as father, what, what, what the writer has in mind is compassion. And so again, Isaiah in chapter 63, verses 15 to 16, he will appeal to God to, as father to show compassion. He writes, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, speaking to God. But, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. So he, he's appealing to the father to show compassion. So that this child is to be everlasting father means for his people everlasting security. This supernatural ruler and warrior, he's going to be a father to his people. And he's going to care for them with compassion and tenderness. And finally, this child is prince of peace. He comes to establish peace. He establishes peace primarily with God. Back in chapter 1 and verse 2, right there at the beginning of Isaiah, there is the complaint by God himself. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Well, this child will reconcile these rebellious children back to God. And he will establish peace not only with God, but with other men, and even within their own hearts. So, again, Isaiah in chapter 26, verses 1 to 3, speaks in the, of this. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates. that The righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. And this is the peace in, in, in his city that he will establish. As those who come into that city will have that peace. Now this prince, who himself possesses such peace, again will give that peace to us. And what great attributes belong to this child, wouldn't you agree? Wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the the Prince of Peace, the, the Mighty God. And with those attributes in mind, then you can understand what kind of ruler he's going to be. That's spoken of in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So his kingdom will continually grow. And it will grow until he is ruler over all of creation. And his reign itself will be marked by peace. All other kings expand their rule through warfare and through oppression. The kingdom of the, of, of the Prince of Peace, that will grow through peace itself. We're told furthermore that he will sit on the throne of David and be over his kingdom. And what this is saying is that he is the true son of David. And he will reign over his kingdom that rightfully belongs to him. He's fulfilling the promise of God to David. 
So he's not a usurper of the throne. He's not a false pretender. He is the one true king. And as that one true king, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. As wonderful counselor, this king will act with perfect wisdom. He will always know what is right to do. As the mighty God, he will always be able to carry out his will. He will not be a ruler who lacks good judgment or who lacks the power to carry out his rule. And he will do this from this time forth and forevermore. The everlasting Father will compassionately watch over his people through eternity. He will not die. No one will be able to overtake him. His his peaceful, righteous reign will not end. And we can be certain of this, that it will take place because of that last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the word for Lord is Yahweh or Jehovah. It was the sacred name of God given to Moses when God delivered his people from Egypt. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of all power. That is the God who's going to accomplish this. And why will he accomplish it? Because he is zealous for his kingdom. He does not have a casual interest in the work of his child. He has not retired and let his son take on the business and and hopes he does okay. He is jealous for his glory, and he is determined that it will be displayed through this child's deliverance and reign. And finally, he will accomplish all that has been prophesied. The birth of this child, the redemption that he will accomplish, the reign that he will have, All of this will be guaranteed by the Almighty Lord. What a wonderful child this is. What a wonderful ruler he will be. And and how wondrous it is that all of this is taking place for us. And that's easy to pass over the first few words of this text. Back in in verse 6, the first two lines. For to us... To us, a child is born. To us, a child is given, a son is given. Now, who is us? Well, first and foremost, certainly in Isaiah's mind, it is the people of God. It's Israel. It's, it's, Isaiah specifically states earlier on that his prophecies were for Judah and for Jerusalem. Now, as, as you know, there was the one kingdom of Israel that eventually broke up into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom that retained the name Israel, the southern kingdom that took on the name Judah. But even though that happened, God never accepted this division of the people as though they were two different covenant nations. Now, there remained one. And God held the northern kingdom Israel is accountable to him as the southern kingdom, Judah. And furthermore, his promises applied to both as well. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at the beginning of chapter 9. And you'll see there it begins this way. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were tribes of the northern kingdom. And their boundaries were encompassed by what would become known as the territory of Galilee. That's where Nazareth was located. And so what's being noted here is that though the child will be born in Bethlehem, which is of the southern kingdom, it is out of, excuse me, it is out of Nazareth in the northern kingdom that he's actually going to come forth as that grown man making his appearance. And so from there, from there, the great light will break forth into this land of darkness. In verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So in the land where the darkness was the greatest, because the sin was the greatest, in that land will the light first shine. In the land where judgment was the greatest, for it was the northern kingdom that was first destroyed and scattered And never was brought back again, except for the remnant that remained there. It is there where mercy would be first manifested. And so this is a testimony that however great the sin of the northern kingdom had been, God keeps his covenant promises. God does not cut off completely those who are included in his covenant. God's grace abounds more than sin can abound. And so us refers to that one covenant nation of Israel, to both the the southern and the northern. But then there's a clue that indicates that it, it takes on more. It's spread even further than this one covenant nation. When we read Galilee of the Nations, as the name for this territory. And no, no doubt, the first thing we think about is where, well, that's where Jesus lived. That's Nazareth. He lived in Galilee. But I want you to look again at the name. It's not simply Galilee, but Galilee of the nations. The Hebrew term for nations is also translated Gentiles. And so all through the history of Israel, this particular area was a mixed area demographically. The Canaanite people were never completely driven out there in that, in that place. And so there was always this intermixture of non-Israelites with the Israelites or the Jews. And indeed, actually, in most of the period after the Babylonian exile, when the, the people come back from Babylon and many of them settled in, into Galilee, Even so, the Gentiles were the majority in Galilee. And so the reference to Galilee of the nations, what's being said here is that a light will shine in the darkness of other nations, even of Gentiles. Now, this is not stretching the meaning of the phrase. You may remember when God first called Abraham and gave him a promise, the promise was this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then right there in the middle of the Psalms, in Psalm 67, 
speaks of this. Let me let me read it to you. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples, it's in plural, not just the Jews, but other peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, not, not just Israel. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's the glorious vision. Never was just to be Israel, but was to go forth through all of the earth. And Isaiah speaks of the servant of God who himself will be a light to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And if there might be any lingering doubt, if the light is for nations and peoples outside of Israel, then listen to the worship. That's in the throne room of God, giving glory to Christ the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, one kingdom, and priests to our God. and They shall reign on the earth. And so to us, to us is to everyone. It's to everyone who's as identified by John in his gospel. John 1, 9 through 13, speaking of the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, meaning the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It is to all, it is to all who will believe and receive the Lord. But we have but four days until Christmas. And I know as good Christians that even in the midst of all the the secular celebration, I can be assured that you have not forgotten that that Jesus is the reason for the season, that you have not taken Christ out of Christmas. I know that you celebrate the wonder of Christ's birth. But I'd like for you now to reflect Again, on what Isaiah 9, verse 6 is focusing on. That this wonder of wonders, this Christ child, is for us. It's to us that this wondrous child was born. To us that the Son of God was given as the Son of Man. He came to be be our ruler. He came to give us peace. This whole purpose of this mystery of God becoming man was done for our benefit. We're not mere spectators of this, you know, this wonder 
of, of wondrous events. We're the goal. We're the mission that he came to, to accomplish. The wonderful counselor's wise plan was to save us. The mighty God exercised his great power to save us, to deliver us. The everlasting Father brought us everlasting, eternal life. Prince of Peace reconciled us to God, from whom we had been estranged. Consider how wondrous it is that God would do such a thing for us, particularly as we considered who we were. We were not members of his covenant nation. We were Gentiles outside of the covenant. And yet God made us receivers of the covenant promises. Were we somehow of special note? Did he, did he look at us and, and he saw some special people and that we deserve to be saved? Well, in Romans 5, verses 6 through 9 tells us that it was while we were weak, while we were sinners. In fact, it says, while we were enemies of God. Well, that's when Christ came to die for us. And consider as well this, that God did not need us. He's not up there feeling lonely. We have God, three persons in one. He needs no creatures to keep him company. He needs no one to kind of fill in where something is lacking. And he certainly did not need rebellious creatures. And as much as we may look to God's promises, we need to realize that he never needed to make any of them. He didn't have to make a covenant with anyone. We add nothing. We've got to be honest here. We add nothing to his glory. And even so, he chose to send his son to be born in a humbling manner, to face suffering from his creatures, so that his creatures may be made like his son. And then I want you to consider even something more special for us. Now, this, this prophecy of Isaiah, and indeed all, all the prophecies that, that pointed to the Savior, they were for our benefit. Peter explains this in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is what he's saying. You know, the, the great men and, and women of faith in the Old Testament, as great as their faith was, and all these miracles that had been performed, and as great as the accomplishments were that, that they had through their faith, what they most desired, was reserved for us in our time. And Hebrews 11 writes, All of these, though commended through their faith, 
did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I mean, you're starting to, to grasp here? You look at Moses, you look at David, you look at Isaiah, you look at uh, has all these great men and, and women, all these things. They would have given it all away to know, to, to experience, to have what we have. That's what's being said here. To us, a child is born to us. That is a great wonder indeed. And I, and I would ask you, do you feel at times that you've been left out, you know, kind of passed over? You think about all these wondrous gifts that were given to these men and women of old. And, you know, if only God, you know, if only he could give you a, a miracle, some special gift, some, some great work that could be done by you. He's given you Christ. He has reserved his greatest gift for you. Do you at times feel unworthy of this because of your lack of a pedigree? Well, realize that though you were on the outside, you know, because of, of being a Gentile, he nevertheless fulfilled his promise to you. To bring the blessing of the light of Christ to you actually because you were on the outside. Christ came outside of his home. To bring you inside his. You feel ashamed because of your sins? Well, the whole point of that past, of that the reference I made in Romans 5, telling us about being sinners and, and enemies when Christ came to us. The whole point is to assure us that Christ did do that job of reconciling us to God. Whatever you may see in the mirror, know that God sees not a sinner. He sees an adopted, beloved child because his only son was given to us to make us his children. You ever feel ashamed? God is not ashamed to be called your father. Christ is not ashamed to be called your brother. He has come to you. It's a gift you have received. Now, there may be someone here who has never received the gift of Christ for, for all of these same reasons. You think of who you are, what you have done, you believe maybe that the gifts are not for you, that, that you have been passed over. Maybe you think, though, that you know, if, if I could change my life, if I could get it in order somehow, maybe I might be good enough to be given such a gift. Well, have you not understood? A child is born to us precisely because we live in darkness. And only he can be the light that dispels that darkness around us. A son is given to us because we cannot have peace without him. To us, to you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. And all that is required of you is simply to believe in such a gift. To receive it by faith. Receive the child. Let that Redeemer deliver you from your darkness. We give you thanks, our God, that to us this child was born. To us this son was given. Oh, we glory in him. 
We give you praise and thanksgiving, and may all the more, may all the more may we rejoice. Rejoice in the blessing and the riches of this great gift. In his name we pray. Amen.